This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Hi, I'm Elise Lunen, Chief Content Officer here at Goop. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. I've been following the work of today's guests for a long time. You could say I'm a bit obsessed with the material she studies. But before I tell you all about that, let's talk about our friends at Chase Sapphire, who made today's episode possible. When I'm not in the Goop office, I might be flying back and forth to New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Seattle, to interview the guests you hear on the show every week. I love getting to sit down with these incredible people and much prefer having a face-to-face conversation and traveling has its pros and cons. With the Chase Sapphire Reserve Card, there are some pretty sweet perks though. You can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide, and an even better bonus is that those points are worth 50% more when you redeem them for travel through Chase. So maybe you'll go for that hotel upgrade, or spring for some more legroom, or extend your next road trip through the weekend. And if you're in need of some travel tips and inspo heading into the holiday season, just go to goop.com and check out the holiday travel guide that we collaborated on with Chase Sapphire. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. Leslie Kane is an investigative journalist and author of UFOs and Surviving Death. I have been trying to get her on this podcast for a long time. I'm a mega fan. So today my dreams came true and I talked to Leslie about death, which you might know is one of my favorite things to talk about. I asked Leslie about reincarnation and the cases she's documented that show evidence of consciousness being carried from one life into the next. We talked about near-death experiences and the biology and spiritual meaning behind them. And we get into all of the good stuff seances, physical mediumship, spirit molds, ectoplasm, and then a little bit on UFOs because Leslie has been leading the team of investigative journalists who have been reporting on those for decades. Leslie explains how the stigma around mediumship and psychics is changing and how there's a lot more proof of life after death than we think. The question of consciousness and what it really means is a never-ending rabbit hole, which is the best part about it. The question is, Okay, so there's all this evidence that suggests a separate consciousness from the body can function without a brain. If that's the case, can we communicate with that consciousness? So let's get to my conversation with Leslie Kane. Leslie, I, as you know, have been trying to track you down for an in-person conversation for a long time. I'm a mega fan of your work. And actually, I want to tell you just to give a little bit of context. So we first 
talked about UFOs, which I think is, you wrote that book in 2010, or that's yes. when the book came out. So we had done a story with you on the site about your research. And I know you're sort of one of the leading journalists writing about UFOs. And, and then I had my brother-in-law died two and a half years ago. And in anticipation, not in anticipation, but prior to that, we have been talking internally about do, the importance of doing a death package, more about the practicalities of death, life insurance, what to think through. And a number of bizarre circumstances led me down a different path. And one of the thing, one, one thing that happened is I got a, a really random email from a website called Outer Limits Radio. It showed up in my inbox pre-flagged. And I was like, what is this weird batshit email? And it was, it was truly batshit. It was like, who is Ann Curry channeling? And who has Abe Lincoln reincarnated as? And, but there was an interview in that. I, I sort of scrolled through it, and there was an interview with Dr. Jeffrey Long. And I listened to it. And he had written that book about, has gathered probably tens of thousands of near-death experiences on his website as an oncologist. I'm sure you're familiar with his work. So I listened to it and was sort of blown away. I'd never really experienced near-death experiences. So I called in his book and then I was on Amazon and because I'd ordered UFOs, it suggested surviving death to me, which had literally come out the week before. And so I was like, oh, "Oh." so I got that book. And then I had Laura Lynn Jackson's book on my shelf, which I, who I know we'll talk about, mm-hmm. Mutual Fan. And I started grabbing all these books that have been sent to me, and this whole package started taking a different direction. And I was going to take those books home on a Friday, and Peter died on Sunday. Whoa. And I felt like I, my soul had prepared me. Whoa. And you were part of that? And Peter, was it a sudden death? Or a sudden death, yeah. In his sleep, he was 39, oh, an undiagnosed so heart oh. disease. I know. It's interesting, like even in the immediate aftermath, it was so comforting to be able to feel like he's here. And then, of course, we had so many signs. And I spoke to Laura. I met Laura shortly after, which was I know your reading with her was incredibly important mm-hmm. for you in the in the writing of Surviving Death. But for me as well, it was like a proof. I know it's impossible to prove these things, but the stuff that emerged was so specific, so right. like mundane and funny and inside jokes that there was no, it left no shadow of a doubt that I was connecting to Peter. Isn't that wonderful thing? Yeah. It's just wonderful, yeah. So anyway, I recommend your book to everyone. I think it's such an incredible survey of the entire landscape. It's fascinating. And I know you sort of entered it as a curious skeptic, and you've seemed to have spent your career exploring topics I love this quote from you, topics that despite data, scientists seem to say it can't be, therefore it isn't. The sort of, you, you describe it as almost scientism. Right. Yeah. I and mean, I do see it that way because there's so much interesting data and they don't seem to want to deal with it. Yeah. And I think they have a, a view of reality that doesn't conform with these possibilities. As I said, it can't be, therefore it isn't. But I think it's. I think that's gradually changing. I think there are more and more academics and scientists becoming interested in matters that have to do with consciousness, which is really one way to frame this. Yeah, the so. most important question of the day, right? And they have not been able to explain consciousness. It's it's all theoretical. I mean, nobody's been able to say, well, it's created right here in the brain, and this is how it works. You right. know, so it's an open question. Yeah, and I know throughout the book you talk sort of about how there are so many institutes that are accepting of psi phenomena who have studied it, whether it's at Stanford or, I guess, UVA DOPS and, and all of their work around past life experiences. But it, I think a lot of people don't even realize that there are these academic programs. I think it's true. They don't. I mean, the, the program at University of Virginia is just wonderful. And I encourage everyone to go on that website and they'll see that they've got, you know, child psychiatrists and medical doctors and, you know, highly sophisticated academics studying this stuff full time and they've done fantastic work and it's completely credible. Yeah. And it's true. I don't think most people know that. They think it's just sort of some, some kind of woo-woo experience that somebody talks about. And I think that the important point is it's the combination of the research with 
the experiences that people have. I mean, that's part of the research. Mm-hmm. So in my book, I'm trying to weave both together. And it also includes my own personal experiences that I never thought I would ever have, which right. became part of the book. And I never didn't anticipate that. So I think that's, you know, that's another component. It's not just about research. It's about people's engagement with it. And it's hard to research some of these things in yeah. a sort of conventional way because scientific tools don't necessarily lend themselves to investigating some of these things. And there clearly are fraudulent mediums and clearly. there have been, you know, since the dawn of time. You That's know? right. Um, and, and that creates more of a problem. Right. And there are mediums who just think they have abilities and don't. Right. It's definitely in, in, in my conversations and, and friendship with Laura and other people who have exceptional skills like her, like it is a, you have to train. It is a, it is a different language. You are translating, you're trying to get the information right. And so therefore, you know, there's a scale of ability I agree and experience. with you. Yeah. yeah, and I think, you know, people like Laura are kind of born with that gift. Mm-hmm. So she sort of trains herself through the help of you know, the other side, as she describes it. But it takes a long time. It takes mm-hmm. a long time, and things happen, and you don't ex- she didn't expect that she was ever going to be a medium. She thought she'd just be a psychic, you know? It's not something that you grow up and choose as your career no. aspiration. I mean, you know, it's it isolates you in certain ways. Yeah. But I think she has an amazing gift. Amazing. Yeah. And such a light-filled, wonderful person. I agree. So let's start sort of where you begin in the book with past life experiences and the work at UVA DOPS, because... That sort of blew my head open. So can you sort of give an overview of, there are several accounts in the book that are incredible, but is, do you have a favorite? Well, in terms of the child reincarnation, I mean, there's yeah. two that I write about in the book, and they're both American cases that happened fairly recently, which is also amazing because many of the, the, the cases on record adopts are, you know, in Sri Lanka and Burma and Indian cultures that kind of accept reincarnation so that more people... Come bring forward. them forward, yeah. But these, the case of James Leininger, the little boy who remembered being a World War II pilot, is just extraordinary. I mean, and that, I opened the book with it because it's so gripping and it's so hard to explain it away. Mm-hmm. And that was actually what got me interested in all of this from the very beginning. It was really the hook for me was these these children who, at the age of like say two, when they can, they're just learning to talk start providing very specific details of what they say is a past life, specific enough that investigators are able to actually confirm that that person existed. Mm -hmm. And then they can see whether all the points the child gave were accurate. And in in the case of James, they were all accurate. And so how do you explain that? And not only are are there memories, but there's also behaviors there. And, you know, he had nightmares, repeated nightmares where he relived his actual death in the previous life, terrifying. And he was obsessed with airplanes because mm-hmm. he was in that life, he was a pilot, you know. So there's a, there's a lot that goes on in the child's life that goes beyond just memories. Right. There's a whole reality that that child is living in that's connected to that uh, past yeah. life. And a trauma, you know, Definitely. and not being able to release the trauma. And I mean, that moment too, where he is connected with his still living sister, Exactly. And has a conversation it's with her about a painting. I mean, that was crazy. He remembered all these details from their childhood. And she, he's on the phone when she's in her 80s. I think she was mid-80s at the time. Yeah. And he, because she had lost her brother when he was in his 20s. And her brother, you know, was reincarnated, if you're willing to accept that, as this little boy. And she came to believe that that was indeed her brother because of the things that James was able to tell her yeah. about their childhood that, no, you know, he couldn't possibly have known. Yeah, the paintings, and then he gave you know gave her a lot of uh, things from her brother's life that meant a great deal to James. It's totally amazing. Boy, you know, yeah. he was like two when he started, or even not even two when he started to have the memories. And then you know, for age four and age five, he was still pretty involved. They went to reunions with veterans, and he got to meet people who were on the who served with him in the previous life. And then as you get older, the child tends to move on, and you know, the memories fade. And they just live a normal life. I think it was a little hard for James because his case was so public. So, you know, because his parents did a a TV thing and they were hoping that they might learn more through doing that because they hadn't solved the case yet. But anyway, he basically goes on and lives a normal life. But he didn't forget everything. And a lot of times they do forget just about everything. But if it's on the record, you know, it's there. 
It's amazing. And even the kids that you write about in Sri Lanka and in India who are born sort of reincarnated and slightly disfigured, I thought was amazing too. Um, Ian Stevenson was fascinated by those. He was the, you know, the original pioneer in all these studies. And he did these massive volumes of cases and a lot of them involved birthmarks or disfigurations or, you know, birth defects and things like that that corresponded to injuries, let's say, that the person had in the previous life or how they were killed. Yeah. You know, like they were shot. One of the kids was shot in the side of his face, so his whole side of his face was deformed when he was born. And the child isn't really old old enough to make that up. He doesn't even really know he has a deformed side of his face. He's just sort of who he is. And then he talks about how he was killed in his past life. And sometimes they're able to get medical records from the previous person that verify that the, the injuries actually occurred as the child reported them, and you can see the physical marks on their body that correspond to it. It's pretty amazing. It's so fascinating, and what that means. And what and that means, and how does that biology yeah. consist, how does, that be, how does it carry through in biology, not just in memory, right, in consciousness, yeah. it's physical. Yeah, well, total mind-body, right? Total how mind-body. How in- involved exactly. the two are. It's incredible. But I think it's among the best evidence we have for the consciousness existing outside of the body and actually continuing. Right. Because it's very hard to find other explanations for these cases. Right. And the idea, too, is probably worth just sort of restating the theories of consciousness, either that the materialist view being that we somehow, our brain creates consciousness and that it expires when we die. It is completely bound in the biology, which to me is so confusing because I'm like, how are we all creating or generating the same consciousness? And then this view that we are spiritual beings in a physical body and that when we die, the spirit remains intact. Right. And that theory incorporates the concept that consciousness is, we're more like a receiver of consciousness, you know, mm-hmm. that, it's, it, that the, it doesn't depend on the brain for its existence. Right. But in our, when we're in our bodies, we can, it's sort of like a television set receiving a signal. When the television set breaks the signals are still out there. Right. So it's sort of that concept of what consciousness is as opposed to being something that neurons make in your brain, and you're just basically a biological robot. You're just physical matter, and when you die, that's the absolute end of you. Right. So, and there's so much more, so much evidence that's, you know, not just people's personal experiences, but so much evidence that suggests that Mm -hmm. theory that consciousness is much bigger than our brains. Yeah. And that it can function independently of our brains. It's the the wildest. And it makes sense when you look at all these situations and they all sort of, all these different areas of research all point towards that same reality. That's what's so fascinating. It's like, that's why it's so fascinating to journalists to look at so many areas yeah. because they all sort of go take you to the same place, even though they're different. You why know? do you think that that's so hard to accept? Well, it's a good question. I think that the scientific community is very wedded to their worldview. Yeah. And, you know, it's such a profound challenge to the worldview that they have that that it's going to, I mean, things, radical changes and shifts in paradigms are always resisted. Mm -hmm. And they always take a long time. It's been seen throughout history in their books written, you know, about this would be a change in paradigm. Mm -hmm. And the, but the other thing to note is that in some other cultures, they're not, as resistant to it as we are in America. Right. So, you know, other other countries, it's way more accepted. Yeah. Yeah, so. The two don't seem mutually exclusive. Like, I've never really understood why you can't be scientific and spiritual or why this unwinds so much for so many people. I, I remember, actually, when I spoke to Dr. Jeffrey Long, he said something really beautiful and that stuck with me. He said to, he was explaining to me about one of the most incredible near-death experience accounts on the site and how it was a shared near-death experience. It was a, a man and his fiance and they were in a car accident and he survived and she didn't. And he recalls them both traveling up above the car, holding hands. And then someone came to get her and they were separated consciously and he was told he had to go back down and he was unconscious but he knew you know her head was on his shoulder and he knew she had died and Mm. I I was like you know what's why like why wouldn't why did why did she have to go and why did he not and he's like 
Well, I think it's a function of biology. Like her body couldn't, her body mm. was not equipped to survive and his was. And I was like, right. But I think somehow we think if this exists, therefore it negates biology and there is no, none of right. that matters. Which it doesn't, obviously. It doesn't. I mean, yeah. if you're, you know, if you're in an accident, your body's going to be affected. Right. Right. It's not like spirit controls everything. Exactly. There was something about that where I was like, right, it's, I get it. Not every death has some sort of spiritual meaning or. I agree. I agree. That's true. And that's why yeah. you can sort of overdo it if you think. And that's also, you know, people that have illnesses and they're sometimes told by, you know, meta, you know, sort of these new age people that they're responsible for their illness. Mm-hmm. They've caused it, you know, and the reason, you know, and reading in all this symbolism to situations like that is a dangerous thing to do, I think. Right. And I don't think it's reality either. Right. There's clear, clearly we need just more clarity in general and a greater understanding of these things. Because I do think, like, we, obviously our mind has an incredible ability to heal and or probably promulgate or create imbalance, but but there's a confluence of events. It's, yeah, I agree. Yeah. Absolutely right. Yep. So yeah. then, and then I, I think the next stage of the book is when you go and you speak to Laura and you speak to Sandy. Yeah, Sandy I mean, after, after I did, did deal some, some did do near-death experiences and right. veridical out-of-bodies. But, you know, a lot those are things people know a lot about. Yeah. So, you know, but some amazing cases in that realm to sort of, because I was asking the question after looking at the reincarnation cases, is there evidence that consciousness can function separate from the body. I mean, because that's what the survive the reincarnation cases suggest that, that this consciousness has lived on from one life to another. Therefore it had to function separately from a body. Plus it carries all the memories right. and the emotions of the past life. So there's some kind of consciousness that actually can carry things with it that relate to the specific person. I mean, that's phenomenal. So then I was asking the question, well, is there other evidence or is it, or is there evidence that could confirm this theory that consciousness can survive like that and function independently of the body? And that's where you get at veridical out-of-body experiences where people leave their bodies, you know, if they're dying or something mm-hmm. and they can confirm things that they've seen in the environment, mm-hmm. and then near-death experiences, which we've talked a little bit about. And then from there, the question is, okay, so there's all this evidence that suggests a separate consciousness from the body can function without a brain. If that's the case, can we communicate with that consciousness? And as we saw with the past lives, that consciousness, does it contain all this personal information? Therefore, if we can communicate it, are we able to recognize it mm-hmm. as a specific somebody maybe that we knew or somebody with specific characteristics. So that that's that opens up the door to mental mediumship. Mm-hmm. And the, the whole purpose of that is to be able to communicate with the consciousness, that very consciousness that we, we've already determined can function independently of a body. And my God, if you can communicate with it, I mean, and you said for you, it, it was as good as proof yeah. that you were, and you know, I felt the same way. I mean, in the moment, you feel you are in touch with that person. Yeah. And there's no way to ever prove that, as you said, but I don't think that really matters. What really matters is the the meaning that it has for the sitter, yeah. the person receiving the reading. And if they feel through that that they're connected to their loved one and it help, helps them heal, it's it's wonderful. Yeah. You know? But I, I struggle with that as a, you know, as the objective side of me is always having to ask those questions. And there is this debate you know, that I refer to sometimes in the book, although I don't want to, I don't go into it in a lot of detail, but about whether mental mediumship is, in, actually does involve deceased people or whether it's just the medium's own human abilities that are able to access the information. Right, like it's psychic. Psychic versus survival or however you want to frame it. And that's right. a c- continuing debate within the, the world of people who study this. Yeah. But, and there's no way to prove it either way. That's the bottom line. Totally. You can't definitively prove it, but you know what your experience is with that medium, and you know what feels like where it feels like it's coming for you. Plus, you have to listen to what the mediums themselves say, mm-hmm. and especially Laura, who is unique in having this screen yeah. that she works through, where she can actually separate the mediumistic information or the me- the information coming from deceased people from the psychic. She can clearly separate them and see the difference, feel the difference. 
And, you know, why not trust the person who's the one bringing it in to be able to discern that? Yeah. And she can. And I think other mediums can. Some of them, I've interviewed a lot of them, and some of them feel they can't really tell the difference. Mm -hmm. And they don't even necessarily think about it that much because what's important to them is just that the information comes through. But Laura's really unique in her ability to to separate them. And I think that's convincing evidence for the validity of of that perspective. And then some of the work that you talk about in the book, too, about information that no one can validate in that moment until they're that requires a lot of research and investigation. I mean, those cases are astonishing they as well. Are. Yeah, yeah, because information will come through that the sitter says doesn't know anything about, right? And then they go ask their grandmother three weeks later, and oh yeah, that's blah blah blah, and it's yeah. confirmed. It's- and so you know, you have to argue that that medium is somehow getting that information t- telepathically from that grandmother somehow, mm-hmm. who she doesn't even know exists, right? Unless, you know, you're just a person she's never met. I mean, you have to make some pretty big, argue, you know, if you're arguing for the psi theory, you have to really stretch it pretty yeah. far with the, with good mediumship. And so, but again, you can never prove it because we don't understand how psi works. Maybe there is some extreme capacity that people have, but right. it doesn't feel that way when you're having a yeah. reading. I don't think it felt that way to you. No, absolutely not. <laughs> and it's also, you know, I, I understand why we want, why we love proof and we always want to ground things and matter and in black and white. But I think that this is one of those pushes us collectively to acknowledge that there are things that exist that we might never be able to explain. Exactly. And I think, I think that's, in some ways, the more I learn, the more I realize how much I don't know Mm -hmm. and how much we can't explain. I mean, it's true. And that, but that's part of the wonderfulness of it to me. I mean, I love the mystery of it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we're ever going to be able to explain it. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. It can only go so far, right? Yeah. And I think it might be pushing us to sort of expand our ability to think about things as less binary and less dual, less black and white. And I don't think right. that that would culturally be so so bad for us. I agree with you very much. And, and also to enter into experience of it yeah. and allow that to be without having to box it in any particular way, like yeah. you did with your reading, like I did with my readings. You know, you just enter into it and something happens. Yeah. And, and I think too, with someone like Laura, there's an emotional resonance and, and some, I've spoken to a number, you know, a through blind readings and that we're always evaluating people and the, similarly to how you do it, where it's, they don't know who they're talking to. Right. And it's some people have the ability to give fact that's verifiable. I think what's specific or interesting about Laura too, and what makes her exceptional is that she can, ca- she can carry emotion and personality. And so there are nuances, even in the way that it comes through where you're, you feel of course, like that is the joke that that person would tell. Exactly. You feel that personality. That, that person would care about. I definitely felt experience that with yeah. her. And I think that is one of her special gifts because I've done readings with other mediums who like the, the other person I wrote, Sandra O'Hara, in my book was absolutely incredible in terms of the facts. Mm-hmm. And she got, the, and the characters did come through, but with Laura, it's very profound how much those yeah. nuances come through. She does long readings too and very in depth. So yeah. that. You know, that's all part of what she does that's just so incredible. Yeah. It's those nuances. I completely agree with you. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, You know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. 
Don't go anywhere. We'll be back with Leslie Kane in just a second. If you feel like you're overdue for a family vacation or a dinner out with your best friends, I feel you. If you're looking for any incentive to pull the trigger, there's always Chase Sapphire Reserve. With this card, you can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide. And when you're on the road or on vacation or eating out, this all adds up, as you know. So might as well get rewarded for it, right? The other big perk of the Sapphire card is that you receive up to $300 in statement credits annually as reimbursements for travel purchases charged to your card. So maybe you'll try out that new dinner spot with your friends or finally take a day off and get out of Dodge. Or maybe it's just the scenic train ride to work for you. It all adds up into more rewards with Chase Sapphire Reserve. And if you happen to be in need of some travel tips leading into the holiday season, head to goop.com. Once you're there, check out the holiday travel guide that we collaborated on with Chase Sapphire Reserve. You probably know Gretchen Rubin from books like The Happiness Project and Better Than Before. We've interviewed Gretchen a few times over the years, once about making and keeping resolutions, which is a good Q&A to return to if you're looking ahead to New Year's. Gretchen would argue that a lot of the advice we've been given about habits doesn't really work and that there's a better way to set ourselves up for success. And I also love the Q&A we did with Gretchen on her book, The Four Tendencies, and how we can use our strengths to live our best lives. This is a topic that she revisits in different ways every week on her podcast, Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Each week, she discusses practical tips about happiness with her sister and co-host, Elizabeth Kraft, a Hollywood TV writer who, lovingly, refers to Gretchen as her happiness bully. Together, Gretchen and Elizabeth cover lessons from cutting-edge science, ancient wisdom, pop culture, and their own experiences. And they share concrete, doable solutions for how we can make our lives more productive, more creative, healthier, and happier. Each week, they suggest something to try at home and a happiness hack, which is exactly what it sounds like. And if you're a fan of Gretchen's Four Tendencies personality framework that divides people into upholders, questioners, obligers, and rebels, you'll learn to use it to get along better with the people in your life. Subscribe and listen to Happier with Gretchen Rubin today. Okay, let's get back into my conversation with Leslie Kane. Let's talk yeah. about seances and physical okay. mediums. That's too. the hardest one to talk about. I know it's so crazy. It's but, pretty hard for people to wrap their minds but around. But the Kluski and, hand molds, and yeah. then your experiences with Stuart Alexander. Okay. Yeah. I mean, physical mediumship is—you know—there have been lots of frauds, mm-hmm. and the thing that's hard for people to understand about it is that physical phenomena occur in this situation that are are just supposed to be absolutely impossible. You can't imagine how they can occur. But there have been mediums in history that have been studied, one of them being Kluski, which you just mentioned, to such an extent that they have been able to prove that they are valid, genuine mediums and these phenomena are really occurring. And Kluski, Franek Kluski was one of them. He was a Polish medium. And back in the 1920s, these two astute scientists, one of them a Nobel Prize winner, you know, in medicine, who was trained in all these different medical disciplines and had published papers all over the place, you know, very, very good reputation. And they control the environment. I mean, it's a long story because the medium is there and he goes into a trance state, which means he's not really aware of what's going on. But you have to control the environment so thoroughly to eliminate any possibility of fraud happening or anybody sneaking in the room or anything like that that could explain what happens. And they did all of that, you know, and you could, you know, just having the room locked. I mean, I won't go into all the details, but these guys knew how to control an environment because they were scientists. Mm -hmm. And so they made sure that nothing could have been fraudulent about these seances that happened. And the amazing thing about Kluski was that there were a lot of materialized forms that would appear in his seances. And so what they did was they invited these materialized forms to put their hands in very, very hot wax during the seances, and this again under strict controls, and they would make these, it was very thin gloves of wax, and the only way they could remove their hands from them was to dematerialize the hands because the, the gloves were so thin that if they, they couldn't slide them out or they would mm-hmm. have destroyed them. They have a narrow wrist, 
and some of them the hands are are clutched. It's, they're beautiful. You can Google. Yeah, you everyone can see needs pictures to Google of those. those. They're Google just those. incredible. And the other really evidential thing about them is that they were some of them were smaller. So they would be like an adult hand, but they'd be a child size. So they'd be much smaller than a human being hand would actually be, which is also very evidential because, you know, it's just part of the evidence that they're not like some man's hand that could have been in the room. They couldn't have been anyway. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they're small size makes them even more interesting. Yeah. And so what they would do, so the wax gloves would be dropped in the room, sometimes on people's bodies who were sitting there, and they would dry, and then they would pour plaster inside of them and peel off the wax, and then they'd have a perfect mold of these actual materialized hands. And, I mean, that's evidence that's so close to... I I was just so fascinated by those. Mm -hmm. I was so fascinated by them because they are physical evidence for this phenomena that happened, and you you can trust these two scientists who were in charge of these experiments. Mm -hmm. They did a lot of things to, to assure... And, you know, I may can talk about that if you want, but I'm not sure you want to take up time with it. But they And they wrote lengthy papers describing all their protocols and how they controlled everything. Yeah. They would sneak dye into the wax that nobody knew was there to yeah. make sure that nothing was brought in. But it couldn't have been brought in anyway because they had complete control of the room. And they held the medium's hands and, you know, everything. Yeah. And they could actually sometimes see the hands kind of illuminated going into the wax. Oh, it's so just, cool. It's so mind-blowing. And you touched a materialized hand. I did. I (laughs) did. And again, it's very hard to talk about it out of context. I much prefer having an hour just to talk about that because it's so hard for people to, it's so hard to wrap your mind around. But there is, as there has been in history, there have been genuine physical mediums who manifest all kinds of physical stuff in the seance room. Kluski being one of them, but there were others as that and they, others have been also documented by scientists under very rigorous conditions. So there, there's one today that can do the same thing. So I start in my book by giving you some of the history to actually show that how well, how carefully these mediums have been studied. So at least you can accept that it has happened in the past. So it's not that much of a leap to go to the present, right? Mm-hmm. And I've had the good fortune of sitting many times with Stuart Alexander, who's an, a an incredibly rare physical medium who's in England and has doing it for been doing it for about 40 years now. He's in his 70s. I was just over there like a couple of weeks ago for s- sitting with him. And it's just, you know, you experience these things in the seance room. And yeah. sometimes things are in the light, sometimes they're not. It's all complicated because of the, the use of this substance called ectoplasm, which is very sensitive to light, which probably most people think is something from Ghostbusters movie that's a joke. But it's not. And, you know, ectoplasm has been documented many times and it's been taken to the lab and it's been photographed, and but it looks very weird in photographs. Yeah. It's really a messy thing with physical mediumship. <laughs> but, you know, that you, you can trust that I've done my due diligence with this medium and I checked everything out thoroughly and have, have sat with him for so many years that if there was anything untoward going on, I would definitely know by now. Yeah. There's no question about that. Um, it's the most wonderful thing in the world to sit with something like that. I can only imagine what that is and like. And they also bring in, it's, there's a mental mediumship component to it, which, because Stuart himself has said the physical manifestations don't really prove anything except that they're awesome. But yeah. you need to combine that with information coming from loved ones. And that, in some ways, is the most important component. And that's similar to what Laura does, where one of Stuart's spirit guides will bring information through as part of the seance to the sitter. So that's a really important component of it. It's not just about the physical manifestations. Next time you go, take me with you. (laughs) Oh, gosh, I will. (laughs) I'll try to do that. It is. It's it's like nothing else. Well, I appreciate that you are brave to go into these areas where people you know, want to denigrate or laugh or mock or reject. I mean, it's, it's, it's so important, yet it's, I know it's dangerous and, and right. difficult. I mean, I think the physical mediumship, that was the most dangerous part for me, Yeah, you know, and I really thought hard about it. Yeah. And I just realized, you know, it's real. Not only have I studied the literature, but I've experienced it myself. How can I leave it out, you know? Yeah. And I just, I realized, though, yeah, it was a big risk. 
But I think I wrote the book in a sequence that by the time the person gets there, it's the last part of the book. They've at least had so much already that they've understood that maybe they can accept it. Yeah. And also they can trust my voice at that point. Yeah. And I try to re reflect back to people, you know, you must think this, you know, I try to reflect back to people how they must be feeling while they're reading this. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean that, and but I really haven't, I haven't had like people writing me and saying you're completely crazy or, no. I mean, you know, I've had well, I think a lot of interest from people in it. Yeah. yeah. I think most people, one, are curious or two, have had an experience that they had they struggle to rationalize. I don't think, you know, it's, life is strange. Life is strange. And so many people have experiences and they, they don't have anyone they feel they can talk to about them yeah. lots of times, you know? Totally. But there's so many after-death communications that people have or psychic precognitive dreams or, you know, all kinds of things yeah. that, that sort of change their perception of reality. But a lot of people feel isolated with that information because there's such a stigma. I, but I really do think that's changing now. I do too. I do. To go back to it can't be, therefore it isn't. And I know we, we don't have that much time, but I mm -hmm. do want to talk to you about UFOs while I have you. Okay. Because you are sort of the lead journalist on any, whether it's in the New York Times or it started in the Boston Globe back in the day, right? Yeah, it was my first story in the Boston Globe in the year 2000, actually. Yeah. When that was, ago. that was when, it wasn't NASA, it was the French NASA. The French right? report, yeah. Yeah. They, that was, that's what got me on the path of going after UFOs. And yeah. they were essentially saying, like, this exists and we need to be prepared. And yeah, everyone exactly. else sort of persists in having their heads in the ground. I want to read this to you instead of making you recall it from memory. But essentially, you, within the book, you say, and in your reporting, mm -hmm. th that there 5 to 10% of sightings are definitely UFOs and that they are unidentified. Doesn't right. necessarily mean that they're piloted by aliens. But exactly. That, but there's enough data to determine that they can't be explained. Right. If you don't have the data, you'll never know. Exactly. They have to, and, and they're usually involving military people and very credible multiple witnesses right. and things like that. And yeah. you say, like, if it's the otherwise, it would be one of the following weather balloons, flares, sky lanterns, secret military aircraft, birds reflecting the sun, planes reflecting the sun, blimps, helicopters, planes in formation, the planets Venus or Mars, meteors or meteorites, space junk, satellites, swamp gas, spinning eddies, sun dogs, ball lightning, ice crystals, reflected light off clouds, lights on the ground, or lights reflected on a cockpit window. There's probably more, too. <laughs> That's a lot of the possibilities. <laughs> That's fun. It's fun to hear you read that. <laughs> and some of those are the explanations that have been were offered up by Project Blue Book in the 60s, the government program, that were actually bogus explanations. Right. But those are the kinds of things, and some of them are legit, yeah. Right. But then but, there have been... In and your... satellites are probably... Often people will see a satellite, or they'll see even a star, and they think it's, it's Venus, but they think it's a UFO. I mean, it happens right. all the time. Yeah. Right. But those five to 10, I mean, the book is remarkable. The photographs are remarkable in terms of these sightings that are totally inexplicable. And I didn't realize, like in Belgium, that there was years of waves of... That was case was unique because usually the sightings occur in one moment, you know. Right. But Belgium, it was a wave, which meant that it, the things kept recurring over a period of time. It's phenomenal. And they just kept, for some reason, in this one area of Belgium, these triangular craft just kept coming around for over a year. Right. And not all levels of government were involved in trying to determine whether they were Russian or American. Right. Or... And they eliminated that possibility pretty, yeah. I mean, pretty convincingly. And they, But the, the interesting thing about it is that the Air Force did take it seriously and they were public about it. Right. And they tried to figure out what they were, whereas in America, at that same time period, they would... We had a wave here in the 1980s in the Hudson Valley, right here outside New York City. And it was just interesting to compare the two governments' approaches because in our, our case, they just sort of deny it's happening and they don't do anything. Right. They don't take it on. And these, this was also a wave where people were seeing them over and over again. And we just said, oh, there are planes flying in formation and they just – the government doesn't get involved. And it's so the Belgian case is fascinating in terms of the phenomenon itself but also in terms of – the responsible way that the the Air Force responded to it, mm -hmm. which here is the opposite. Right, we, we respond com with completely irresponsibly by basically ignoring it, and people have nowhere to turn to, right? Except the local police force or something like that, or a, a civilian group they might report it. 
but it's I consider it to be completely irresponsible that we don't that the way we you know we handle it. So it's important to compare it with other countries, and you can see the difference. Right, and many pilots report strange craft. Oh yeah, but they have nowhere to report it to in America. Right. This is the this is the sad thing. The case in O'Hare Airport in two thousand six. I mean, this thing was hovering over that airport for five minutes, a, a disc-like object, and and not one pilot who saw it or aviation, you know, trained aviation person was willing to put their name on the record. Even though this thing was there, there, there are tape recordings of people talking about it in the tower. Yeah. You know, it was clearly, there's no question it was there, and yet they're afraid to, and, and the government did absolutely nothing to investigate that case. What is that about? And then there's nowhere for people to even turn to, to report it. And it's terrible for the witnesses. It's it's upsetting because some of them are upset by what they've seen, right? It changes their lives. They see something that they don't think could be of this world. And our government isn't even willing to listen to them report it. They don't have no way of reporting it. It's criminal. It's... Do you think the government is reporting, recording it and discussing it in private? Yeah, I mean, uh, there is, as we reported in the Times, there has been a, 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 depart, you know, a program within the Department of Defense, which we just discovered in 2017, that have been working on for 10 years. But they're just dealing with military cases that come to them through the Navy, for instance, mm-hmm. or through the Air Force. But the, the commercial pilots, they weren't even dealing with those cases. Yeah. So they're, you know, there's just no place for them to report, whereas in other countries in Europe, they, they report them just like they report anything else because they're a hazard to flight safety. Right. A hazard to flight safety. And like they have the ability, I guess you were talking about in Montana, there was a red where there, where there are many nuclear silos. This is back in the day. And they were able to, sh- they shut down all the nuclear right. warheads, right? That one they took seriously. Yeah. Totally. Which is but kind then, of amazing. But like, after an incident like that, the Air Force told the public that there has been no, it was when they shut down their program, Project Blue Book, which was investigating these cases, they made the statement there have been no UFO events that have been a threat to national security. Mm-hmm. Now, they said that even after the there was an event in which all these missile silos went down, yeah. maybe nuclear weapons, is that a threat to national security? I think so. Unless it's um, UFOs protecting us from starting some sort of international nuclear well, war. Well, I don't think that the government knew. <laughs> All they knew was that something was shutting down our missiles, and anybody involved from that case was yeah. very clear that that was a national security concern right. during the Cold War, right? Yep. And for them to tell the public otherwise, they, they, they you know. So there's been a long history of our government either stating falsehoods about it and then trying to not participate publicly right. at all. What do so. you think is going on? What do you, do you know? What the, I guess you, you don't know, right? There's we no don't proof. know. Nobody yeah. really knows. I mean, we know certain things about the phenomenon because it's been consistent since right. the 1940s. And we have government agencies, and we, as the New York Times reported, the Department of Defense has been gathering evidence and studying them. And they have a lot that's classified that we don't even have access to. They have much more than what we know. Mm-hmm. But they, they can't tell us what they are, where they're from. Is somebody driving them? Mm-hmm. What is their intention? All those fascinating questions we don't have the answer to. And I caution people who go on the Internet and find some website where they're answering all those questions that that is speculation. Right. Because it's, there's so many people out there that have these theories or you know, conspiracy theories or theories about what the UFOs are, and they present them as if they're facts and they're not. So right. you just have to realize that we know a lot about how they behave you know, they, they represent, they seem to represent some kind of technology that is way beyond what we are capable of here. They're very technological. They're physical for sure. And we have no control over what they do. They come and go and they, you know, incredible speeds, incredible abilities to maneuver that we can't explain. And they have affect people that get too close to them. Mm -hmm. And when, you know, so there's a lot of, and they, they're, they're on radar sometimes, other times not. How do but, they affect people who get too close to well, them? Well, sometimes people have actual burns mm. or they might, sometimes people also develop sort of paranormal capacities after they've encountered one of them, which is really interesting. Uh, something opens up in their brains, mm-hmm. some capacities that they didn't have before. So just book. like with, with um, near-death experiences, the same kind of thing where sometimes people after a near-death experience will have sort of psychic capacities that they didn't have before that experience. And 
So there are sort of, par- there's a paranormal kind of, they call it high strangeness. I mean, if you've heard that term, aspect to UFOs when, when people encounter them. Mm-hmm. That is a whole other component of the mystery of the phenomenon, which isn't so much what they could study at the Department of Defense. That their interest there was to be able to understand the technology, right. because wouldn't it be great if we could learn how to do what they what these objects are doing? What are you going to work on next? <laughs> well, I'm very involved right now with a documentary series that's being produced on surviving death. So that's my my focus, and also always hoping to do more stories for the New York Times on UFOs. Yeah. Because it just depends on what develops, what information we, and I work with other journalists there, what we can get our, you know, what information comes our way, and whether we have stories that are are at an at the high enough level that the Times requires, which is, it's great that they do require, they're very rigorous, you know, and have a yeah. high bar for stories. So we're all, I'm always plugged in and learning a lot and keeping tabs on what's going on in that rea- in the UFO spectrum so that if there's some story coming out, we can grab it. So that takes time, you yeah. know, to do that, even if nothing comes of it, because there's a lot you have to read about that never comes, never makes itself into the New York Times, right? Right. So I, I basically, I'm doing that and, and, and the surviving death documentary right now. And other than that, I don't know what I'll do next. You, well, <laughs> my hands are, I'm, I'm busy right now. You're tired. So. Well, you seem to be focused on the most interesting questions. And I think you're an American hero for doing oh, you're it. You're so sweet to say that. <laughs> but I mean, I can't help myself. I'm just interested. I know. I'm deeply the, interested in these mysteries. It's you know? so cool. And I like applying journalistic skills to it because most people don't do that. Yeah. So that people can understand what we really know and what we really don't know, and they don't have to rely on speculation or theories. Mm-hmm. And what we do know is fascinating enough. You don't have to make things up or add speculation to it because right. it's incredible enough. The facts are incredible. Yeah. And then people can decide for themselves how they want to interpret it. So I, I really enjoy being able to be somebody that does that because there aren't many people doing it. Yeah. So. No, it's a, like an incredible combination of lived experience and things that are certifiable and quantifiable. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Leslie Kane. For more on Leslie, check out her books, Each Fascinating, Surviving Death, and UFOs. Read our interviews with Leslie at goop.com slash the podcast and check out her website, survivingdeathkane.com. But that's spelled K-E-A-N. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back this Thursday for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.